Happy New Year, church. Good to see everybody here. We're in the book of Acts this morning. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. It follows on the Gospels. So if you can find Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, one more book, you can find Acts. Easy enough to find. Acts chapter 13. Turn with me, if you would, there in your copy of the Scripture. If you're visiting, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. We're happy you're here. We'd ask that you not leave empty-handed, but you pick up a copy of a little book that I've written that'll help you get to know us as a church better. It'll help you get to know us, our aim. It's, it's talking about our focus as a church. It's our prayer that your experience here, as you're in worship, you'd have a growing and deep sense of belonging as you worship with us. As I mentioned this morning, we start a new sermon series. It's titled Together for the Gospel. The aim of the series is to help answer questions like, what's the purpose of the church, or why are we here, or even why would Glen Ellen Bible Church and Poplar Creek Church partner together? What's, what's our hope? What's our focus? What's motivating us? To answer these types of questions, we're diving into the book of Acts, but we're, we're diving in in the middle of the book of Acts. We're starting in chapter 13 which comes after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, which is Acts 1, as well as after the condescension or the arrival of the Holy Spirit, which is Acts chapter 2. It comes after the stoning of Stephen, which Saul Paul uh, stood in authority over. That's Acts 7. It also comes after the great persecution broke out against Christians in Jerusalem, and it scattered the Christians all over the Mediterranean world. Geographically, the events of our passage this morning took place 400 miles north of Jerusalem in a city called Antioch of Syria. Interestingly, it was in Antioch, you may know, that Christians were first called Christians. So we're in Acts 13. I'll read the first couple verses, then take a pause and do my best to explain them. Luke writes, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And then he lists some of those folks. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, then he says parenthetically, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch. And then he says, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. We'll pause there for just a minute. Chapter 13 marks a significant point in global history. Most believe that the events listed here took place around 47 A.D., about 15 years after Jesus was raised from the grave. Up to this point, Jerusalem had been the center of church activities, and Peter had been the primary leader up to this point. But a shift is taking place. And the center of the church and the activities of the church had moved north, and the leadership of the church was in some transition, uh, shifting more to Paul's influence, Antioch becoming the hub of Christian activities and Paul saw, saw Paul becoming a major influence. Why this geographic shift north? Well, just as Jesus had foretold at his ascension, 
the gospel would be carried far beyond Jerusalem to Judea, he said, then Samaria, then he said the uttermost parts of the world. Picture in your mind something like concentric circles uh, flowing out of after you throw a, a rock in the middle of a pond. The, the gospel was spreading as Christians carried the gospel away from Jerusalem. In this spread, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, Yes, it was happening because of persecution. Christians were fleeing the persecution of Jerusalem. But it's also clear in Acts 13 here that the Spirit, it wasn't simply a passive move in response to persecution, but it was also an active move that the Spirit was initiating, mobilizing Christians, sending them out on mission to make more disciples by preaching the gospel all over the Mediterranean world. And if you're a note taker, you might jot down, mission was the Spirit's idea for making more disciples. Are we living on mission? Are you praying for the advance of the gospel in your home? Are you praying for the advance of the gospel in your neighborhood, at school? Are you financing the advance of the gospel? Mission is a, a whole life experience, a wholehearted investment. Are you supporting the work of the local church, missionaries whom God places on your heart, gospel-centered missions organizations locally and globally? Are you looking for people with whom you can share the gospel? I just changed health clubs, and it occurred to me in my new health club, wow, all these people I don't know, I wonder if they're people of faith. And begin praying, Lord, who could I share with? My trust in you, your goodness towards us in Christ. I ask if we're living on mission because it's clear that mission is what the Spirit is all about. It's his idea for making more followers of Jesus. In this particular case, he selected two folks Paul, Saul, and Barnabas. But he called everyone at the church in Antioch to be a part of that effort. 2,000 years later, this reality hasn't changed. As a disciple-making church, we do four things primarily. We proclaim the gospel. We have this pretty target that identifies what we're all about. In fact, this is what the following Jesus book that we give away each week to, to new folks this is what it's explaining, this target. Uh, we proclaim the gospel, we restore the broken, we equip believers, and then we send out disciples. That's what we believe the church is called to do. This target illustrates our aim. So when we ask the question, what are we doing here? What, why are we gathered as a community? At least in part, we're gathered for deployment. We're gathered to be sent. We're a people who are investing our resources and going out to be lights in the world. That's what the adoption of PCC is all about, Poplar Creek Church. That's what the Reach Capital Campaign is about. We're sending people out. We're sending out our resources to help more people follow Jesus in Bartlett. The church is not a giant multi-level marketing system or scheme existing to care only for its own. 
No, the church is an organism gathered by God for the purposes of deploying both its people and resources to help others, to help others come to know Christ and grow in their faith. To be a part of the church means being a part of a sending organism, family. Jesus himself said just before his ascension, go and make disciples of all nations. I love the apparent ordinariness of the events that are described in today's passage. Luke writes in verse 2 of Acts 13, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. We aren't told how the Spirit spoke, how, how the Spirit communicated this message. It was most likely through one of the, what are called the Antioch Five, those five guys listed at the beginning of the passage. And what a diverse group they are. Barnabas from Cyprus, a Mediterranean island. Simeon and Lucius from North Africa. Menaean raised with royalty, raised in Herod's household. Saul from a, uh, what is today modern-day Turkey, out, far outside Jerusalem, Saul raised in Tarsus. What a beautiful picture of diversity present in the early church. What I love about the ordinariness of this passage, though, they're being together in worship when the Spirit speaks to them, giving an indication of the importance of the gathering of God's people. They were in worship when the Spirit spoke. This gathering this morning probably feels pretty ordinary, and rightly so. It's something we do regularly. But it's during the ordinary course of the gathering for worship that we can expect God to speak, act, select, call people to mission. It's certainly not the only time that we can expect God to speak and direct his people, but it's what I would like to call prime time. Often people will say to me, in last Sunday during the worship service, the Lord said to me, well, that makes sense. And it's in line with, it's congruous with what we see here in the New Testament. Of course, Luke also notes that they weren't simply in worship, but that they were also fasting. They were in worship, the ordinary activity for Christians, we gather together. Uh, it's called fellowship. It's a unique activity that the Holy Spirit draws us to. But he says it wasn't simply they were doing the ordinary thing. He said they were also fasting, which is a more unique and extraordinary activity. To fast is to forego food, and the purpose of fasting is to open our ears to better enable us to hear what the Lord's saying. And not surprisingly, they hear from the Lord. Fasting is also aimed at helping us cultivate a greater dependence upon the Lord, which we'll need as a missional people, a people going and being sent. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness for a time of temptation, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus fasted for 40 days. The goal was to strengthen this fasting. The goal was to strengthen himself for the temptation that was coming. When tempted by Satan to turn stones into bread, he famously responded, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I have a need, he said, to hear from God 
more than I have a need to fill my belly. Are we aware? Are we keenly aware of what are our primary needs and what are our secondary needs? I have a habit of getting hangry. If you know this, um, if you hang out around the church, um, folks will tease me sometimes. Have you missed a meal, Kelly? Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We have a need to hear from our Creator. His Word and fasting opens our ears. Along the same line, Jesus also said to his disciples, John chapter 4, it's recorded, he had just spoken with the woman at the well. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. What sustains us? What fills us? What satiates our deepest needs? It's doing the will of God. It's not the latest fad or the newest food at the hippest restaurant. Our greatest need is to be about the will of our Creator. Our greatest need is to hear the voice of our Creator. That's what brings life. That's what sustains us. How did the church at Antioch together, right, together for the gospel, how did they together send out Paul and Barnabas? Verse 3. They were worshiping and fasting when the Holy Spirit spoke. So after fasting and prayer, they placed their hands on them and sent them out. Most simply put, the value of fasting is that it opens our ears so that we can hear from the Lord more clearly deepens our dependence so that we can respond to the Lord. For this reason, GBC has made a habit of the last, I'll say, decade, I'm ballparking that, of beginning our year with a season of prayer and fasting, and together for the next three weeks, we'll, we'll seek the Lord. January 11 to 31, we'd invite the entire congregation together for prayer and fasting. If fasting's new for you, or you want to refresh your understanding of it, we have a little web page, gebible.org slash prayer and fasting. Go to that web page. There's an FAQ uh, sheet there. Um, I also was on the YouTube, Glowing Bible Church's YouTube channel this morning, and the videos from last year, the season of prayer and fasting, are still up. And so if you want to go back and refresh yourself there, there are little three- and four-minute videos of me talking about the value of fasting. So if fasting's new for you, we have lots of resources. We'll gather during this season of prayer and fasting, both online and in person. We want to invite you to those opportunities. We gather every Sunday morning at 7.45 and every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. online. It's a Zoom meeting. And uh, if you want to be added to the distribution list so you get the Zoom link, just email Beth Sherbing. Her email address is up there. You could email me and I'd pass it along. We'll gather on Sunday nights for prayer and fasting, the 15th, 22nd, and 29th. Now, often people show up at church, they want to know, what can I do to make a difference? How can I live differently, folks? There's a clear takeaway from this morning's passage. The first believers were in worship and fasting when they heard with clarity from the Lord. And then they acted through prayer and fasting on what they'd heard from the Lord. We want to, there's no better way to begin our year 
than through prayer and fasting. And if it's overwhelming to you, if it's daunting to you, I'm not the type of person that would encourage you to jump in the deep end of the pool with fasting. Start in the shallow end of the pool. Get your legs under you. Uh, fasting is something that takes a while to, to, um, to sense its value. <laughs> and I always like to mention that Glow Bible Church is calling no one to diet. This isn't a call to diet. Fasting is very different. Fasting is what we do, we go without food to pray. So fasting without prayer is dieting, and that's not what we're calling you to. We're calling the church to go without maybe the foo-foo drink from Starbucks, or a meal, or meat in your meal, or dessert. You're going to give something up so that you can focus on prayer. Make no mistake, the next 21 days of prayer and fasting are core to who we are and what we are doing together for the gospel as a church. And whether you're a beginner in prayer um, or a seasoned veteran, these gatherings on the screen will be a blessing to you. I hope you'll join us. Let me read a little further in Acts 13. So they sent them off. <clears throat> the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. And I'll just pause there and say, the church at Antioch sent them, but Luke is really clear. It's the work of the Holy Spirit through these people. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. I'll have a map here in a minute. It'll help us uh, understand ge the geography of this. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John, also known as John Mark, was with them as their helper. Verse 6, they traveled through the whole island. Do we have these, these verses? We're working. Oh, we don't. Uh-oh. Take my word for it. Verse 6. <laughs> they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to, quote, hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, there's the mention of the Holy Spirit again, and the same spirit that enabled Paul is with us, the same spirit that raised Christ from the grave is with us, Filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked straight at Elamus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Interesting what the Spirit might empower in our lives. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed convert on the island of Cyprus, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. On the screen is a map of the Mediterranean world, and the red line indicates the journey that Paul and Barnabas took. They start on the right side of the screen in Antioch of Syria, and they make their way down to Seleucia, a port city there. And then they sail over to Cyprus, 130 miles southwest. They land in the port city of Seleucia on the island. Then they worked their way about 90 miles across the island 
to Salamis, uh, from Salamis to Paphos. Over the next few weeks, we'll trace the, re- the rest of Paul and Silas, uh, Paul and Barnabas's journey around uh, what is today modern-day Turkey. And they plant churches in Perga, Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And then they retrace their steps, visiting the new believers on their way home to Antioch. It's interesting to note that Cyprus was the homeland of Barnabas. So he leaves uh, Antioch of Syria and then sails from Seleucia, uh, Seleucia, and he's going home. He's taking the gospel back to his island, right, where he grew up. In fact, church history holds that Barnabas was later martyred on that island. And here is a picture of a monastery that's there in Cyprus today, founded in, in Barnabas' honor. Anybody been to Cyprus? Take the tour of the monastery. Politically, Cyprus was at that time a Roman territory annexed about 58 years earlier, just before the birth of Jesus. Rome would be interested in this island because it's obviously on a major trade route. Profitable. The population had a a strong contingent of Jewish folks which supported the synagogues where Paul and Barnabas would stop first, preach the gospel, preach the word of God. It also was a Roman outpost, lots of soldiers, uh, folks like Sergius Paulus, who was the governor of the island. Remember, the question is on, on the table is, what are we doing together? As a church, the answer from this morning's passage, we are together by and for the gospel. In verse 5, when they arrived at Salamos, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And then later, uh, we read in verse 7, Sergius Paulus, the governor, the proconsul, sent for Barnabas. He wanted to hear the word of God. Make no mistake, the church didn't give birth to the gospel. The gospel gave birth to the church. That's really important. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of raising Christ from the grave. And then the proclaiming of the good news of the gospel that that brings people to faith. And then the Holy Spirit gathers those people in churches. That's why we know that the Lord is building his church. He's doing it through us, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. But you say to me, well, Saul and Barnabas don't have the New Testament at that time. It hadn't been written yet. So what does it mean that they preach the Word of God? What exactly are they saying? It means that they're expounding upon the Old Testament, declaring the person and work of Jesus Christ the Messiah, the anointed one, the one promised as fulfillment to the Old Testament promises first given to Abraham and then fulfilled in Christ. Jesus, on, his road, on, the, on the road to Emmaus, he expounds on the Old Testament when he's talking to those disciples and he's walking along with them. And he points to the law and the prophets and explains how they all point to him. This is what Paul and Barnabas would have done in the synagogues. When we send people out to make disciples, the tool that we use is the Word of God. Jesus said the fields are ripe for harvest. Well, if they're ripe for harvest, what tool do we carry into the fields? Jesus' point is people are ready to hear, receive the good news. We simply need to enter the fields. We need to open our mouths. But what do we say when we open our mouths? What tool do we use in the harvest? God's Word. Do we take popular psychology into the fields? 
Is that what we talk to? Do we talk about family of origin issues so that people are better able to address difficulties they face in life? Do we take educational philosophy out into the world in an effort to help people remediate bad behavior? Do we take sociological studies? Do we take anthropological insight, hoping to better society? And don't get me wrong, I'm a firm believer that all truth is God's truth, and that psychologists and sociologists and anthropologists and educators have a lot to contribute to the redemptive work of God in the world. But we are to offer the gospel. We are to offer the word of God. Paul offers God's word, and in the end, Sergius Paulus believes. But Paul also meets with some resistance, interestingly enough, as he's preaching to Elamus. He's preaching to Sergius Paulus, and this sorcerer pipes in and tries to discourage Sergius Paulus from believing. The sorcerer's name is Elamus. He opposes Paul. It's interesting to see how Paul handles this. Put it back up on the screen. It's verse 9. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elamus and said, you're a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that's right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time. He curses him with blindness. Not even able to see the light of the sun, immediately mist and darkness came over him. He groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Now what's interesting to me about this, about Paul's reaction here, is it mirrors Paul's experience. Elamus was persecuting Paul, trying to keep Sergius Paulus from believing. And Paul had at one time persecuted believers in their preaching. Do you remember that? Paul had stood in authority at the stoning of Stephen. It's Acts chapter 7. Stephen's preaching the gospel, and they pick up stones and put him to death. Paul had stood there giving his approval, thwarting people from believing. And just as Paul confronted Elamus in his behavior, God confronted Paul. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus is well known. Read it later today. It's Acts chapter 9. It'll remind you there's many overtones of what's going on here in Acts chapter 13. Paul was actually traveling to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 for the purpose of arresting Christians there in Damascus when Jesus appeared to him and confronted him, condemning his persecution of Christians. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Interestingly, that the persecution of believers is synonymous with persecuting the Savior of believers. Do you remember what happened to Paul after he, this vision of Christ knocked him to the ground? He heard this rebuke. He got up from the ground, and he was blind. Just as Paul had consigned Elamus to a period of blindness, for a little while you'll be blind, unable to see. Paul was also struck with blindness. Relieved, it was relieved only after God sent Ananias to pray for his healing. So as harsh as Paul appears in this passage, and these are harsh words, no doubt. Although the words are direct, although the words are confrontational, although the words are condemning of Elamus's behavior, labeling him a child of the devil, cursing him, what's interesting to me is Paul knows 
like no one else would know, I suppose, that a period of blindness could be the best thing to ever happen to Elamus. Necessarily humbling him. For Paul, blindness preceded faith in the Savior. And I can't help believe that Paul's hope was that Elamus would have the same experience. Yes, Paul seems harsh toward Elamus, but that's what had brought Paul to salvation. A direct confrontation, one of authority. How often do we, quote-unquote, pull punches, failing to share what we believe about the truth, about who Jesus is, because we don't want to appear harsh? That's a very real temptation in our modern world. We don't want to look too fanatical. Luke leaves, no doubt here, filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe it's verse 9. Yeah, verse 9, filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul spoke this way to Elamus. These are words of the Holy Spirit, words of confrontation. The Spirit of God had spoken to the church in Antioch, directing them to set, set out, send out Paul and Barnabas for a particular work. They're sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, and then Paul's filled with the Holy Spirit as he speaks this confrontational word. The good news is that God doesn't call us to do anything that he does not equip us to do. Let me say that again. The good news is that God does not call us to do anything that he does not equip us to do. As they were worshiping and fasting, the Lord said, by the Holy Spirit, set apart Paul and Barnabas. And then through fasting and prayer, they set them apart and send them on their way. And then in verse 4, we read, sent out by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 9, we say, filled with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Mission is the paradigm that is going and proclaiming. It's the paradigm for disciple-making. It's the Spirit's paradigm. It's what the Spirit has in mind for making disciples. And in the sending, in the going, in the proclamation, the Spirit empowers that. He will equip us to accomplish what he sent us to do. He's eager, in fact, to fill us with the Spirit. In fact, being filled with the Spirit is a command given in Ephesians 6.18. Be filled with the Spirit. So we can rest assured that the work of mission, the lifestyle of mission, that God's called us to, will be empowered by the Spirit. That includes parenting. The Holy Spirit wants to fill us and empower us for making disciples in our homes. Isn't that good news? Well, that's good news. I have news for the young parents. Parenting adult kids is, is challenging. Uh, adult kids, did I say that? And I've got great adult kids, but there's still plenty to pray for. We need the Holy Spirit to sow seeds of the gospel into our children's lives, to call them to repentance. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us, to know when, to say what, and what posture to strike, for reaching our neighbors, for going to work, and sharing the gospel, and living as a light out in the marketplace. We need the Spirit, and the Spirit is eager to enable us for this effort. We are together. 
because of the gospel. We are together for the gospel. And whatever our particular, our individual mission is, wherever your mission field is, and that's anywhere you set your foot, frankly, God's selecting you and empowering you for witness. And as a church, the Holy Spirit is empowering our witness, both here, 501 Hillside, broader in DuPage County, as we go to Bartlett to be a part of what God's doing up there in the multi-campus paradigm. The Spirit wants to empower us and fill us. And you may say to me, well, how does that get done? Because I don't feel very enabled, very empowered. It gets done as we wait. Those that wait upon the Lord, their strength is renewed. And there's no better waiting posture. I mean, suburbanites are in 21st century. We like to do, right? We want to go, do, accomplish. And I understand that, and I have that, that compulsion as well. But the primary call is to wait. We wait in prayer, and we wait in fasting the next 21 days. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, you're good to us. You care for us. and Thank you that you call us and you send us and you empower us. We want to see our children and grandchildren and neighbors and co-workers and fellow students coming to faith in Jesus. We closed worship a minute ago praying for the nations. Lord, would you give us the nations? Would you raise up people from Guam Bible Church to go globally? And would you empower us to go locally for your glory and our own good? Amen.